fact that the media in many areas is pushing things like OnlyFans, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of sort of high profile media moguls quite often also make money from various areas of the sex industry. Now, I don't want to get into sort of conspiracy thinking. I think that's kind of a no-brainer. There's a hell of a lot of money being made in the sex industry. And so people that are profiting from that are not going to want to paint it as, as a bad thing. And it's also being pushed heavily in our universities, um, which I think is another, I think students are another group that are sort of being funneled into the sex industry. And that's coming both through, both through the media, but also through academia itself. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm honored to have with me Michelle Kelly. She is a British sex trafficking survivor and an activist. She is the best-selling author of Eyes Wide Open, published by HarperCollins. She blogs about her experiences at michellek.substack.com. Today, we might find ourselves talking about her experience being trafficked into prostitution and pornography, um, her process of healing from that trauma, her activism, exposing the harms of the sex industry and fighting against its expansion, um, the effect of porn culture on women and modern sexuality, and how the so-called sex work is work lobby overlaps with the gender ideology th- uh, cult, queer theory, and the concerns that many listeners of the show have about what's happening to vulnerable young people these days. Michelle, it's really an honor to have you here on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I guess we'll begin with your story, whatever you're willing to share of how you found yourself um, being trafficked and abused. Yeah, so um, it actually happened twice um, on two separate occasions, um, so through two different abusers, which is is something I've only recently started being able to talk about publicly. I think I felt for a long time that for this to, to sort of happen again, there must be something wrong with me. And so it was something that was quite difficult to talk about for a long time. Um, but uh, my first experience, so I was a, I was 19, 20. Um, I'd become homeless due to fleeing an abusive relationship. And I won't go, I won't go into sort of into, into too much detail, but to sort of explain how I ended up in the industry in the first place. I had a friend, um, who offered me work doing what I suppose would now be sort of termed sugaring. We didn't really, I'm going back 20 years now, so we didn't really use that term then. Um, And my understanding of it um, was that it would literally be sort of paid dating and that there was nothing kind of sexual involved unless, of course, you you genuinely liked someone and and chose it. And and, and what sort of happened um, was I went to meet the quote-unquote manager of the 
the sugaring agency and was was essentially raped, um, bundled into a car and taken to my first punter. Um, and this then went on for a few months. Um, it was obviously terrifying. I was terrified um, the entire time. I had no clue really how to how to get away. Um, I was sort of sofa surfing on on at friends' places during this time, and they knew they knew my location. Um, there was I'm not sure how much I'm, I'm able to say about this legally, uh, but I don't know if you've heard of the grooming gang scandals in the UK. Not much. Okay, so um, there's, there's been quite a lot of media uproar the past few years from what's become known as grooming gang scandals, um, which mostly occurred sort of 10, 20 years ago, um, although I, I believe they're still ongoing in, in, in some areas where basically groups of men were sort of coercing um, teenage girls and young women in, in, into sex trafficking. Um, I didn't find out until sort of years later when this came to light and I saw some of the faces of the perpetrators um, in my local media, that uh, some of the drivers that had been involved in the, the ring I'd been trafficked in were also involved in these quote unquote grooming gangs. So it was clearly a sort of much bigger, more widespread operation than I ever realised back then. Um, and the way I got out of that was by returning to the abusive relationship. It was the only way out that I could see at that point. And, and, uh, my partner was in a different location, so I felt that I'd be safe from, from my trafficker. And so I sort of literally went from, from frying pan to fire. And then um, some years later, uh, I was still in the abusive relationship. And my partner then trafficked me into webcamming um, and pornography. And again, this went on for some time until I was, he was finally um, arrested. He'd actually tried to kill me. And I was taken to refuge. A woman's refuge and that was that was in 2010 and that was when I escaped him um, and started to rebuild my life but I didn't fully exit the industry until 2012 slash 2013 which often surprises people I sort of kept um, the web coming going for a while um, for the simple fact that I didn't know what else to do and how else to make any kind of income I had sort of a major gap in my CV at that point I obviously was very um indoctrinated into that way of life it's something I think people often um people who don't really understand how this kind of thing works they expect that when someone is sort of rescued as such that they're instantly able to rebuild their life and escape the industry and it very rarely works that way getting out and staying out can take a number of years much like abusive relationships the process of kind of getting out and staying out is, is often a long run this was in this was your entire young adulthood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, there was there was a gap of of quite a few years between the first time and and the second. In which time I did, I did rebuild my life in some areas. I went to university. I became an adult education teacher. But I was obviously still in a toxic, abusive relationship. So that eventually escalated into into sex trafficking itself. Did it feel like you were? It felt like you were living a double double life at that point because you were you were educated, you were pursuing a career, and then your home life. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things um, when I when I was at university and when I then entered um, teaching, 
um, I was always terrified of anyone finding out that I'd been in prostitution. Although I knew what had happened to me the first time was was clearly abuse, and I hadn't been given a choice because I'd because I'd sort of consented to what I thought was was a sugaring situation, and because I didn't really understand what trafficking was. I think, like most people, I assumed it was very much gun to your head, smuggled across borders. Um, I didn't frame it that way. I just saw it as I'd been in prostitution and that was obviously a hugely shameful thing and I was terrified of anyone finding out. So it was very much leading, as well as the fact that I was trying to hide the fact that I was being abused by my partner. I was very much leading leading a double life. It sounded like at the time, although you can see it now, at the time you didn't mm. feel like, you didn't see yourself as a victim. You saw yourself as someone who had made poor choices and that was a reflection on you yeah absolutely and I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and something I've I've come to realize through sort of research and working with other survivors is it's really common and I think there's a link there between um having grown up with that 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 kind of feeling of internalized shame and self-blame that so many survivors of CSA have and that then tends to follow into adulthood and there's there's a there's a, a definite link between between CSA and ending up in the industry in one way or another. Um, I don't know exactly what the root causes are for that. I suspect there's lots of different things going on, but I do think that there's perhaps um, in my case anyway. I can't speak for other people. I perhaps was unable to see the red flags so much because abusive situations were somewhat normal to me. Yeah, they they had sort of misformed your instincts at Absolutely. such an early age yeah so then your whole sort of early adulthood living this double life you're feeling mm-hmm. the shame you're feeling like it's a reflection on you um and and you're on the one hand you're trying to aspire to something greater by by pursuing an education and career but you weren't able to escape achieve, uh, excuse me, to achieve escape velocity from that abusive relationship in part because that was the only way out that you saw of the mm-hmm. the trafficking that you were in. So you're in a desperate situation for many years there and carried the shame about the gaps in your CV as well. So then mm-hmm. the the very person who'd abused you from from that from the start of your adulthood really um, mm-hmm. groomed you back into it. It was a horrendous situation. I mean, I, I think I forget sometimes because I spend a lot of time with other survivors as well. Um, I forget how horrific it must sound to people who have no experience of this. It's a lot easier for me to talk about than it used to be. Um, and yeah, I suppose this was literally my norm. As much as I was obviously aware that it was very wrong, but like I said, I carried a lot of shame. It was also my norm. I'm curious about sort of the development of your sense of self at that time and how much do you feel like you relied on disassociation to cope with the abuse or how much do you feel like maybe you like integrated into your sense of who you were, the identity that you'd sort of been forced into? There was a lot going on there. So um, in terms of the disassociation, I mean, that was completely how I coped. And that was obviously something I'd learned from a young age with having been abused. Um, but also I have I have Asperger's 
or what what we now call level one autism yeah and so I think um I think for a lot of a lot of women with autism there's there's quite often a sense of not being at home in your body and at home in your environment anyway which I think can sometimes almost make it easier to disassociate and and also um I'm not very good at seeing when I'm being manipulated um, and to take people at face value. So you sort of add that to to my experiences of being abused as a child as well. Um, and looking back, I was um, I almost feel like a, I was a sitting duck almost. Um, and as mm. much as I was obviously in a huge amount of, of turmoil and distress, I was almost able to just instantly partition that if that makes sense. So that brings us to a very important topic that you've written Mm -hmm. about. You wrote an article. I actually just want to read the names of a few of your articles to listeners to plug in your substack because it's fantastic. You've written articles with titles such as why the legalization of prostitution harms women and minors. Do disabled men have a right to sex with women in the sex trade? How queer theory promotes sex work as work? And sex work is work and the grooming of autistic girls. So let's talk about that. Um, mm. Tell us about what's happening to these vulnerable young women. It was something I came across quite recently, actually. Um, and I was shocked. So I'm aware that, um, I don't know how much you know, I know you talk about um, trans ideology a lot on your, your podcast. I've been listening to a few. It's great, by the way. Thank I'm you. I'm really enjoying it. Um, so I'm aware that there's been a big link between autism and people transitioning. Um, and it's one of the reasons that our children's gender clinic has been shut down. Um, because that just wasn't being passed out properly. You would think that, you know, when the, when the link with autism flags up, that people would step back and, and do some more research on this rather than encouraging autistic teenagers and, and young adults to transition. And that hasn't happened. Um, so that's been quite a scandal. I was looking into that just, just out of interest as an autistic person, really. Um, and I started coming across all these links between sex work is work and um, media that promotes that and gender ideology, ideology, which we kind of already know is there. So trans activists are quite often sex work activists as well. But also a link with with autism and seeing more and more. Um, and I quote a few articles in, in my article, but th- there were so many of them. And they all seem to have come along over the last few years. So I think it's a fairly new link. But th- there's so many sort of influencers now who describe themselves. And they're, they're generally female, not always, but gen- more often female, I think, who are trans identified and also describe themselves as sex workers and are really kind of into this this far left both gender ideology and pushing for the full decriminalization of of prostitution um i don't i only use the term sex work if i'm quoting i don't i don't agree that it is work um i mean i, I guess it's work in the sense if that's how you're making your money Right, but I don't think that we should be framing it as that. I think it's exploitation. Um, and this just seems to be happening more and more. And what's worrying is not just that people are, are announcing, oh, I'm, I'm trans and I'm autistic and I'm a sex worker. So they were, these were autistic influences, essentially. 
describing themselves as both trans and as, as sex workers. But they were actively promoting this. So I've come across articles that were, I think the one that just just absolutely blew my mind at the callousness of it was that because because some autistic people may struggle with social interaction, that sex work would be a good way for them to make friends. I mean, when you look at the statistics for abuse by sex buyers, whether that be stalking, harassment, all the way through to rape and murder, to suggest that you should be making friends with these people as opposed to completely trying to protect yourself from them is ludicrous, and especially for people who are already vulnerable. Um, And it's also being pushed directly by the sex industry. There was a conference a couple of years ago um, by the Free Speech Coalition in the US. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Heard of them? I think they they were pretty much set up to to promote pornography as a form of of free speech. Um, And they held a webinar um, called Neurodiversity in Porn that was directly encouraging neurodiverse people into the sex industry particularly porn Um, and they even cited a production company who operate on a website called kink.com I believe who have been involved in numerous abuse scandals so they're almost now sort of directly funneling vulnerable people into into the industry which I just I just find completely shocking I was just going to say a lot of it seems to be wrapped up in this kind of idea of of queer porn the idea that it's it's something new and it's something groundbreaking and it's more feminist and actually from the little I've seen because I, I can't really stomach going too far into this it's it's really abusive since you real overlap with kind of BDSM and more hardcore practices I mean this isn't something you'd want anyone doing let alone someone who may have other vulnerabilities and you've written about this on your blog, how queer theory mm-hmm. promotes prostitution and sort of sells it as uh-huh. another form of queerness, right? So within the people who believe in queer theory, to right. be queer is much better than to be whatever, you know, cishet they call it. And and uh-huh. now you too can join under the queer umbrella. You've talked about the symbolism right. of the red umbrella. Um Mm-hmm. But, you know, no matter how straight you are by buying or selling sex. So so you've written about how the most yeah. privileged men, uh, the most heartless, lacking in empathy or regard for the human rights of the people they feel entitled mm-hmm. to purchase sex from, um, are now under the queer umbrella, according to this. And, and, and right. this is being promoted as uh, somehow fighting the patriarchy. Um, you, you said the gas gaslighting in this is tremendous. It's just utterly bonkers. I can't think of anything more to use a queer theory term, heteronormative, than the sex industry, particularly prostitution. The majority of some ninety nine point nine nine percent of sex buyers are male. Um, around between eighty five and ninety percent of of people who are selling sex, whether through coercion or, or poverty or, or anything else, are women. It is completely heteronormative. So to, to try and label this as something that's somehow queer and, and transgressive and subversive just makes no sense to me. You know, and even where um, even where sort of gay men um, 
bisexual men and, and trans identified people are involved in the sex trade because I know that there is often a disproportionate number, particularly of, of trans people. Um, to suggest that that's somehow something that they should be doing, that it's somehow inherently queer, given again, like I said, the rates of violence and trafficking that happen, how are we not just funneling a marginalized community into an abusive situation? I've worked with um, actually male survivors. Um, they get very little representation because it's predominantly um, religious groups and radical feminists that fight the sex trade. And they often won't look at um, kind of male survivors as, of the sex trade. They don't, they're not really given much of a voice. And then on, on the other side, obviously, it's seen as something that is inherently queer. Male and trans survivors of the sex trade get really no representation at all. And it seems to me to be a shocking betrayal of the LGBT community that the sex industry is being pushed as something that is inherently queer. And that, it, that it's good for them, that it's empowering. Yeah. I'm bisexual. I find, I find the whole thing really quite insulting. I, I never use the word queer anymore. Since reading queer theory, it's just the term, I just find the term disgusting. It's for anyone who wants to do a deep dive into queer theory, I'd advise doing it with caution because some of it is really grim. And this is, this is coming out of academia, not some seedy corner of the dark web. It's, it's you know, if you look at the foundational papers, it's, it's pro-paedophilia, it's, it's stressing the idea that um, prostitution, pornography, BDSM, transsexuality uh, are all good things because they're smashing norms, they're breaking down the patriarchy. There's no, um, there's no kind of coherent framework for people who are being abused at all. It's just glossed over. There's something really dark that I've heard of happening here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. Um, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if, if you know about it. I'm, I'm sure it's happening in other places. Um, and I, I only know it in, in vague general terms. But what I've heard is happening is that there are young people who are, you know, many of them homeless or running away from home who believe they're trans. So, so we know that the gender ideology comes in and separates kids from their families, right? There's this myth of the abusive parent. Yeah. And while, while abusive parents exist in this world, it's been overblown to the point where all kinds of good, decent, hardworking parents who are trying to provide the best that they can for their kids are being um, cut off completely because their kids have been groomed into this cult that's telling them to mm -hmm. cut off their support structures, which is what what groomers and cults do. Um, and so there's mm -hmm. this wedge being driven between parents and children. And then there's this come join the glitter rainbow family and we'll celebrate your transness, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So all that teenage rebellion gets funneled into this. Adolescents feel empowered, not realizing they're being duped. Mm -hmm. And then they want these hormones and surgeries. And in some places, um, mm -hmm. the state will pay for that. Um, and insurance yeah. companies are being bullied into paying for it. Um, but in cases where youth, um, in quote unquote, have to um, raise money or see themselves as having to raise money for these surgeries, um, I've heard stories of them getting groomed into uh, prostitution through that avenue as sort of this is how you're going to achieve your trans goals. 
right? And then they end up on the streets of Portland. Many of them end up on fentanyl, meth, things like that. Um, and so there's a strong connection here. And where do you draw the lines between the mm-hmm. the trans, the idea of the trans identity and the homelessness, prostitution, yeah. drug use? Um, it seems like it's all connected. So have you heard about this as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's slightly different here because we don't have a huge amount of teen homelessness, at least not street homelessness, although it obviously happens. Um, but there's a huge care to prostitution pipeline. Um, and certainly a lot of grooming of, of teenagers and care that go on and LGBT youth here as well are, are more at risk of, of grooming and trafficking disproportionately at risk. There's a similar a similar thing happening. Um, and what I see sort of coming out of, of the left and out of academia is this idea that these young people have some kind of agency that we shouldn't see them as victims. And they quite often will get referred to as, as underage sex workers rather than as trafficking victims. And I that, just... Um, that can do such damage to a person's identity. It blows my mind. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been pushed I mean, in my identity, much like, much like the trans thing. It can take so many years to unpack what happens when a young, vulnerable person is forming an identity around um, a situation mm. in which actually they're being exploited or abused in some way. You know, sort of like where we started off with your story, where now you can look back with compassion for yourself and you can see that mm-hmm. you were in a vulnerable situation. You didn't understand. It wasn't your fault. Um, but but it can do immense psychological damage, even setting aside the abuse itself. It can do immense psychological damage just to form an identity around thinking that um, I wanted this, right? And then when the regret or the shame or humiliation mm-hmm. comes around, yeah. then, well, who am I? Am I am I a fool? Am I morally corrupt? Yeah, absolutely. How did you, I mean, I I think we're kind of skipping around here, but how did you eventually pull yourself out of this? So like I said, I I left my my partner um, under quite quite distressing circumstances, ended up in a woman's Mm -hmm. refuge. Um, And after a few months, I ended up continuing with the webcamming purely as, as a way to purely as a way to try and get some income, really. Um, and that was only ever meant to be a very short-term thing. As I say, it's quite mm-hmm. difficult to get out of. So the process for me disentangling myself from the industry took a couple of years. Um, but I did it. Um, and, and it was difficult. It was, it, it's practically difficult because you, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get housing, I'm trying to build an income. Um, it was also really emotionally difficult. I, I almost felt like I didn't know how to function in the quote-unquote real world anymore and how to kind of act around. So so what had happened during the last sort of two years with my partner and, and, in the, and being trafficked was I'd developed a drug habit. So I also had to deal with getting clean, and that kept me in, in the industry a lot longer than it would have um, because I needed the extra income that came from, that came from webcamming. I mean, we're lucky enough to have a half-decent welfare system here, at least enough to keep you sort of fed and clothed, if nothing else. Um, but if you've ever spoken to anyone in addiction, that comes first. 
you know, the substance will come first because it, it literally becomes a, something you need to survive. Um, so I was constantly chasing my tail with, with trying to find enough money to both feed my habit and, and live. Um, so I had to get clean before I could leave the industry as well. And I did that primarily through 12-step programs. 12-step. How did I find what, sorry? How did you find the motivation? I don't think it was a case of motivation so much as desperation. I mm. I wanted out. I didn't want to. I didn't want to live that way anymore. Um, addiction is horrendous. Um, you, know, you get to a point where the drugs really aren't. You're not really getting any pleasure at all anymore. It's just something that you you have to do. Um, and that's no way to live. Um, and although I don't like to talk about them too much in public, I have children. And so I was desperately trying to keep, you know, you said earlier about living a double life, desperately trying to keep all of this as away, away from them, as far away from them as possible. Just obviously getting more and more, as they got older, getting more and more difficult. And I think I think they were what pushed me to go to my first 12-step meeting. Because I can't, I can't, looking back, I can't, I can honestly say I didn't do it for myself. I think at that point, my sort of self-esteem and self-worth was that much on the floor. I'm not sure I thought I deserved anything more. But I wanted, I wanted to be there for the kids. I, you know, I didn't want them to, to end up being taken into care or for me to die and leave them alone. Or, as I say, they were getting to an age where it was becoming impossible to keep up this facade, um, and they were starting to realise something was wrong. Even though essentially, um, you know, I'd left the abusive relationship, they were they were settled, things should have been fine, but because of my drug use, they weren't. And they didn't know. They didn't know that I was using. But um, you get to a point where it's just impossible to keep up, to keep up the pretense, really. It just wasn't functional. So recovering from the addiction for you had to be hand in hand mm-hmm. with getting out of the industry. And the industry Absolutely. is why you were addicted. Yeah. You were using the drugs to cope with the trauma. With that and the, the abuse, yeah, absolutely. I think this is quite common um, that people will use drugs because of trauma, whether past or present trauma. But something that I found um, the longer that this was going on with my ability to disassociate got less and less. And I was, mm. I was, I was having sort of regular panic attacks. And so the drug use, um, I mean, it was my partner who essentially introduced me to the drugs in the first place as a way to sort of enable me to, to do what he was forcing me to do. Um, but I, regardless of whether someone is, is coerced into taking drugs or whether they do it through choice, I don't think anyone chooses to get addicted. I think everyone I speak to, no one ever believes that it will happen to them. I think everyone believes that they're going to be able to manage whatever substance it is. And I don't think you, you certainly don't realise you're addicted until it's too late. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an 8-sleep, 
I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. In the healing process, you found 12 steps helpful. You also, at some point, had a turnaround in your view of the mental health industry. Um, I was listening to another podcast you did, yeah. and um, you said that you you had been quite close to the idea of therapy for a while, mm-hmm. um, but clearly you are in a much better space. Something actually that really struck me um, about what you said in that podcast is you said that this idea that men need access to sex or else they will rape women is uh it represents a very grim view of men and then you said something positive mm-hmm. about men you said that even though you have experienced the worst of men you said something about how most men aren't like that and i thought well okay she's clearly healed a lot because Trauma can right. impact your worldview, right? I, it's it's one of the symptoms yeah. of PTSD. I, I know I've experienced it myself during some of the darkest times mm-hmm. in my life where where I was impacted by abuse. I remember a time that I couldn't mm-hmm. see clearly. Um and I I started to I started to think if is everyone actually like this behind closed doors? Like I was losing my grip on reality and my sense that the world is filled with people who are mostly good most of the time. Um mm-hmm. so I I I don't think it's something to be taken for granted that someone who's been through what you've been through can say something so positive um, that, you know, even though you've seen the worst of men, that doesn't represent an accurate view of how most men are. And I was curious how you got to that place, um, how, how you found yourself opening to therapy, what was helpful or not helpful about therapy, especially because we have therapists listening right now. Um, and, and I hope that any therapists who have been endorsing the sex work is work agenda will, um, understand how harmful that is and how, you know, untrustworthy it makes them to survivors of sexual exploitation. Um, so, so for those of us who are interested in healing, whether, you know, survivors listening to this therapists listening to this, um, 
how did you eventually open up to therapy and what was helpful or not helpful in therapy? It took me quite a long time to get into long-term therapy. Um, while I was, so initially, while I was in the woman's refuge, um, we were offered free holistic therapy um, through a charity that the refuge was involved with. And I had something called EFT. I don't know if you've heard of that. Emotional freedom it's technique. Sort of involved. It works on a sort of, yeah, yeah. And it works on a, I think it works on a similar way to EMDR, although it's, it's based in sort of meridian theories and things. And that was fantastic for that acute trauma. I found that was absolutely brilliant. I mean, when I, when I entered the refuge, I was unable to, to leave my room. Um, and by the time I'd had a couple of months of, of EFT, uh, the panic attacks had stopped. But I did, it was a long time after that before I got into long-term therapy. I, I, I did what I, I've always tended to do, which was patch myself up just enough and then carry on. I only actually got into therapy again a couple of years ago because I'd started to speak out about my experiences. I was invited to talk um, in the UK Parliament um, when we were trying to introduce the, the Nordic model here and to bring in um, more legislation around sex trafficking. And so I was publicly sharing my story. And although I thought I was OK to do that, I found out from doing it that I wasn't. And so I had a, a relapse into the PTSD. And that's what convinced me to seek out longer term therapy because it became apparent to me that although although I thought I was healed because I didn't I wasn't having acute PTSD symptoms and I'd completely um recalibrated my life, was in a healthy relationship. Actually that trauma was kind of just there waiting to be triggered. Um and so I found a therapist and I was with her for about eighteen months. Um she was very trauma informed. That was obviously important. Um we did a lot of ecotherapy, which I found really healing throughout in nature a lot. And importantly, you know, she didn't have this sort of ideology that a lot of therapists seem to now. This seems to have become really common. And so here we have the BACP that regulates a lot of our therapy, uh, the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. And they've recently put out a manual which is very sort of pro-sex workers work. Um, and I just don't think a therapist should ever be going into the therapy room with, with what is, a, an, is an ideology. I've heard of survivors having really bad experiences with therapists when they've tried to talk about, about being damaged through, through the sex industry. That's really concerning. And, and it, just, it feels so parallel with what I've experienced working yeah. with detransitioners. Like that it's it's right. so hard for detransitioners to get health care they're in uncharted territory with their health problems and then the mental health care many detransitioners yeah. will never see a therapist again because they're so angry at therapists for betraying them for for affirming them and pushing them down this path and then when mm -hmm. they do seek out health care or mental health care they run into this problem where the ideological agenda of the people they're trying to get help from is a barrier to actually hearing their stories and what they've been through. I just tweeted about this the other day because I feel like every time I talk to a detransitioner about their experiences in pursuing healthcare, whether mental or physical healthcare, um, for detransition, that the responses they get met with by healthcare providers are like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure no one's coercing you? You know, you can always retransition, right? And it's like, where were those questions? when they originally sought to modify their bodies. So I'm just struck by the parallels 
And, and it's one of the reasons that the ideological capture of the counseling profession is something I have to talk about again and again on this show. You know, I feel like every mm-hmm. fifth or 10th episode is an episode where I talk to another therapist about what's happening in our field, because it's really disturbing to know that some of the people who've been through some of the most horrific traumas, whether they've been permanently physically altered by medical procedures that were not necessary, um, or whether they've been through the type of sexual abuse and exploitation that you and and your friends who are also survivors have been through, the the idea that our doors would not be wide open to the most vulnerable people, that we wouldn't be able to hear them without some filter getting in the way, without pushing our own agenda, trying to defend our own pre-existing beliefs, is just is is horrifying and disgraceful. And I've seen this in therapists. I've I've seen therapists who are are very in favor of of the sex work as work line and either they have no idea what they're talking about or in one case that I know of he was a consumer yeah wow I mean it doesn't really surprise me because I think sex buyers are everywhere yeah yeah he he um this was somebody who confided and he he was a colleague that wanted me to feel sorry for him that his wife left him over his cheating on her with prostitutes. yeah he had a poor me story um, so there's yeah there's some really disgraceful things happening in my field and i'm I'm sorry that you or or any of your friends or anyone who's been through this would would even have to worry for a moment that a therapist's own ideological agenda or misinformed beliefs. Um, coming from people who are who have a stake in grooming children and exploiting them or or vulnerable mm-hmm. young people um that that any of that could be a barrier to care anyway but i'm I'm so glad you found a good therapist <laughs> back to you um you you mentioned emotional freedom technique emdr ecotherapy mm-hmm. it's actually really great to hear that ecotherapy worked for you because i've I've gone through phases in my career where I did walk and talk therapy and um, okay. found it more beneficial for some people than others. Sometimes it's too uncontained. There's not enough privacy. Mm-hmm. Of course, I have people sign waivers about understanding the limits to privacy when you're in a yeah. public park. But um, but to know that that was healing for you is is wonderful. Were you Did you have enough privacy um, in that setting? Yeah. So one of the things, we would quite often meet at a local park that had sort of woodlands at the back. Um, so we would do walk and talk sometimes. But at the times we would go into the woods. And something I remember I always found really helpful was I would find like these little enclosed spaces and we'd go and sit in them when I was talking about sort of something that was really traumatic and I would feel very held. Mm-hmm. Um, my therapist would say it's, you know, you sort of use nature as a co-therapist. Um, and I, I'm a bit of a, a tree hugger anyway. So I found this really kind of really beneficial. And she would do a lot of things around sort of, um, what I was sensing in my body and, and how that tracked with how I was feeling about my experiences and, and things like that. And I remember in one session, um, we actually ended up, it was a really w- windy day and I actually ended up kind of running down the hill in the park with my arms outstretched as a way of sort of letting things, feeling that things were processing. I'm not sure how we got to that point. It wasn't, I don't think it was something she'd planned. Um, yeah, it sounds a bit hippie, sort of talking about that back but um but yeah it was really beneficial so I think I think ecotherapy can go all the way from just kind of walk and talk to sort of more um I guess what some people would call woo woo but I know there's a lot of sort of Jungian 
and eco psychology influence on it. I can believe those experiences. When I, I when so. I went for walks with my clients, there would be things that would happen mm-hmm. in a natural setting, things that you couldn't control or predict, but that served as sort of, you know, grist for the yeah. mill, as they say. Like I recall, for instance, yeah. I, ha- I was working with someone who, um, as many, many of my clients struggle with um, boundaries and caretaking and codependency and things like that. Mm-hmm. And this was somebody who was, you know, always worried about other people. And I remember the opportunity crossing a snail in the path and stopping and processing the feelings that were coming up about, should I protect the snail? Should I stop and move the snail so no one hurts it? Or is that not my responsibility? Do I let go and trust and, and you know, hope that the snail will be okay and not get crushed by a mountain biker? There are things like that would come up, you know, or another person who found herself continuously drawn to the dark and heavy and turning away from the light. And we noticed how physically the way she would position herself, turning toward the dark woods instead of the open expanse of water, things like that would come up in a natural setting. And so I can, my, I can start to picture when you describe that, you know, sort of, I'm imagining you nestled in one of those big trees with like Mm -hmm. a hollowed out place or between rocks or that nature is such a wonderful container and also provides all these opportunities for symbolism to emerge and then for you to relate with that symbolism in an organic way yeah absolutely um i think i think there's so many areas that you could you could take that into i think it could be really beneficial um and i found i think this is classed as as a form of ecotherapy here um people talk about canine therapy something else that's been really beneficial for me the past couple of years was getting an assistance pet like a therapy pet You've, you've obviously heard of the background today. <laughs> I think there's something about the unconditional love you get off a dog that can be really healing. I know there's, uh, I think there's programs for veterans in the US where they pair sort of um, veterans with PTSD with, with dogs. And they've been How did you really choose your dog? Was there a process of choosing she your dog or training her? So she was a rescue, um, she was only a few months old. Um, and then I had, once she was at the right age, I had someone come in. There's a charity here that do this, come in and, and help me train her. But I think dogs, uh, dogs tend to be naturally attuned to their owners anyway. I think it's a fairly natural, I feel like it's quite a natural function for them. It's just very basic stuff. Like if I'm having, if I'm a bit upset or distressed about anything, she'll know, she'll come and sit in my lap. She'll bring my favorite blanket over to me and things like that. Hmm. We're talking about these things that are really grounding, connection to the natural world, the plants and animals. Mm, absolutely. I'd imagine that those these types of supports would um, help with re-embodiment after all of that dissociation. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think... Being able to ground yourself back in the world and back into your own body is crucial after trauma. Particularly, I think a lot of dissociation has been involved because it can feel like your body can feel like a frightening place to be. That's kind of world. I think anything that allows you to do that in quite a gentle, soothing way is, is really healing. I found yoga really useful as well. It's, I'm not able to do as much of it now because I have um, a connective tissue disorder. So my, my, my mobility is, is sadly quite limited the last couple of years. But I still do what I can. And I found yoga really useful. Um, as, as an autistic person, I struggle with proprioception anyway. It's also been really useful 
but just learning how my body moves in space. Hmm. How did you get diagnosed with autism? Is it your body keeps the score? Sorry, I think there's a bit of a lag. I keep interrupting you. Go on. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Yeah, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, but I was also asking how, how and when you got diagnosed with autism and, and what that was like for you, the perspective shift that comes with the diagnosis. It was really healing. So I was, I was late diagnosed. I was only diagnosed a few years ago. Um, and it sort of enabled me to look back at things and, and reframe them a little bit. I remember growing up, I always just thought that I was an odd kid. Um, I was mm. bullied quite a lot in primary school for those differences. Um, and I would just put labels on myself. You know, I was I was weird, or I was clumsy, or I was nerdy. And now I can obviously understand um, why they were they were traits for me, and why I always felt so at odds with the world and with people around me. Um, there's a lot of autism in my family. Um, I have two cousins who are quite severely autistic, and since I've been diagnosed, I've had other family members go on to be diagnosed. So. I think perhaps it probably wasn't noticed when I was younger. I mean, the fact that it was the 1980s, we had a lot less knowledge of autism, but also because certain traits that other people might have picked up on were probably quite normal in my family. Nobody noticed that there was something probably quite common. Yeah. The only thing I think I was ever taken to to a health professional forwards. I'm quite dyspraxic, so I walked very late. Um, and that wasn't picked up on. Apparently my doctor just said to my mum, oh, it's, it's fine, she's she's just lazy, she'll she'll catch up. So that that was never investigated. So there were signs of developmental delays, social awkwardness, and looking back you see how Yeah. You you were naive. And that that's one of those traits about yeah. autistic people that can be, it can be so um, endearing. And uh, right. I find the sort of the lack of pretense of autistic people, I find it refreshing. Um, and mm-hmm. so that there's that, that, that innocence that comes with the na- naivety, but wherever there's innocence, we need to protect it. And, and this is why you're speaking out um, yeah. among the many issues you speak out about how these autistic kids are getting groomed, how it happened to you and that your own history Mm -hmm. of trauma, sexual abuse and naivete played a role. And now you're going around debunking these really harmful myths. Like, I mean, I'm still thinking about what you said earlier because it's just so shocking. The idea that um, prostitution is a way to make friends. I was thinking about that so much when you said it, that, you know, if, if you have an autistic person in your life, that you care about, uh, whether it's your child or your therapist, and this is your your patient, whatever it might be, um, helping that person learn how to make friends is is an important way to help, right? But but one of one right. of the main yeah. one of the main things you need to start with is understanding that uh, people can be malicious, that people can be manipulative, that people can have ulterior uh-huh. motives for you. Um, that you are as a, as an autistic person, that you are especially vulnerable to that and that you need to learn some tools because your brain doesn't necessarily process social information in the same way that another person's brain might, you, you have to learn some additional tools and autistic people in my experience can be really good at that, especially people more like you, what we used to call Asperger's, which I I still think is valuable. I wish that we'd never 
lost that, se- that sort yeah, of separate I agree. I agree. category. Um, but people, people with Asperger's are also gifted. So they have this kind of ability where you can just kind of go a different route in the brain. It's almost like this road is closed, but you can take this other route mm-hmm. and can learn to read social cues, almost like learning how to take apart a car. I mean, <laughs> I remember, you know, some people with Asperger's that I've met having brilliant observations about other people's social cues because they had deliberately learned how to read body language as like an art form. Um, so I, I feel like that's one of, one of the important steps of helping somebody that you care about who is autistic is helping them understand manipulation and helping them learn to recognize mm-hmm. who's safe, who is unsafe. How do you make friends? Who is appropriate to be a friend? Um, and these, you know, uh, if you're an adolescent, adults aren't friends unless they're your parents' family friends or, you know, a beloved mm-hmm. teacher maybe who's well vetted. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just like the opposite. It's the very, very opposite of what autistic people need um, is to be told that these people who, who want to harm and take advantage of you, it's, it, and it sends a defeatist message too. Cause it's like, it sends the message. You can't do any better that if you want social connection in your life, this is what you have to put up with. It's ableist, you know, to use a sort of lefty term, it is ableist in saying that autistic people can't possibly make friends. They have to enter into this horrendous, abusive transaction in order to get any social interaction. Um, it would be funny if it wasn't so awful that it, it's these sort of far left groups who will talk about things like ableism that are perpetuating that. I want to know what you think should be done. Um, clearly, you're against legalization. Um, you know more than I do about where around the world there have been legalization, decriminalization efforts, policies, and then how those have played out. Um, I'm certainly not expecting you to know like what's going on in every single country because who can keep track of that unless it's maybe your full-time job. But but on your your blog, there's some information from a presentation you gave on the status Mm -hmm. of things in New Zealand. Um, Earlier, you mentioned Chicago. Um, So maybe let's start with where you are in the UK. What is the legal status there? And is that moving in any particular direction? Is it currently a political fight? Um, It's been dropped here. Um, There was a push a few years ago, which I was involved in, to get the Nordic model brought in, um, which for people who aren't familiar with, involves completely decriminalizing those who sell sex and recognizing that they're being exploited as opposed to committing a crime but criminalising buying and, of course, sort of third-party facilitation, so pimping or owning a brothel, running an agency. Um, But then with the pandemic and just just shifts in kind of political emphasis, it it just seems to have been kicked to the curb, and I don't think there's any political will here at the moment to change our laws on prostitution. And our laws are a bit of a mess, so it's, it's technically legal, to sell sex and buy sex here so it's it's legalized but um women who are selling sex on the street still get arrested for a public solicitation and for um if that can't be proved kind of 
sort of various disrupting, uh, being disruptive in public. Um, so they're still. It sounds like the worst um, of worst of all worlds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the the women um, and people who are most at risk and most vulnerable, because no one's on the street by choice, are the ones at risk of of being arrested and potentially put into prison. Um, but also sex buyers who, so we could call it curb crawling, so who buy sex from people on the street, that is also criminalised. So, so when it's done in public, essentially, if you can see it outside your front door, you can be arrested from it. If it's happening behind a closed door, that's fine. Um, but third party facilitation is still illegal. So escort agencies are illegal. Brothels are illegal on paper. Um, something I talk about, I wrote an article about my first experience of being trafficked on my blog and I called it the escort agency that wasn't because actually as long as these agencies don't publicly say that they're selling sex they're completely legal so if they sell themselves as for example sugaring or dating or companionship and as long as the the agency itself says or whatever you do with the quote-unquote escort is entirely up to her as long as that's being said publicly then it's legal so it's so easy to get away with trafficking and coercion un- under that. And the same with brothels, as long as they sort of market themselves as, as gentlemen's spas or something like that, then no one shuts them down. We, we have a local brothel where I live in the Midlands in the UK that's been here for about 30 years. Everyone knows what it is. The police know what it is. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you from my own experience that, that police are regular sex buyers. So everyone knows where this is happening in the community. So although third party facilitation is technically illegal, it, it's everywhere. So our laws um, and the framework around our laws are just a complete mess. And as we saw with what I, I called the grooming gang scandal, and um, even trafficking of minors is is just going on to a to a huge degree. We have a real problem with domestic sex trafficking here. And and I think largely because um, it's so ill-defined in our laws and there are so many loopholes, it, it, that's actually really easy for, for traffickers and pimping to get away with that. And of course, sex buying. Although there's still a lot of social stigma around prostitution, there's not really anything that can be done in the legal sense. And I think there's something I've noticed as as someone from a working class community is, is a lot is still a lot of stigma against buying sex in working class communities. But it seems to have changed sort of the further you go up the class scale and I wonder how much of that is down to this kind of push of of queer theory and things in academia. And what worries me about that is those sort of values tend to trickle down. You see those culture shifts happening. It's being sort of aggressively pushed here. The sex workers' work ideology. I mean, OnlyFans um, has definitely sort of normalised online um, sex work among sort of Gen Z, and I think that's a real worry. Talk about that. Let's talk about OnlyFans and online pornography. Mm. Um, It's it's shocking how much pornography exists. Just the sheer quantity of it, and then it's also shocking how perverse so much of it is. Um, yeah. I, I've always had a hard time believing that there's any, anybody, any, any woman at least 
any woman that would really truly want to do that. Um, and I, I feel like there's a lot of kind of myths floating around in the culture about how harmless and how empowering it is. Um, From your perspective, how much of pornography is exploitative? All of it. I mean, there are degrees, of course. Um, But I don't see how... If you're profiting, and so I'm talking about sort of producers and directors, if you're profiting from selling someone else's sexual consent, which is what you're doing, then that that is always exploitative. There's no way it can't be exploitative. Um, In terms of how much actual trafficking and coercion goes on, I I would say it's the majority. Just from speaking to to other survivors, from from researching it. I mean, if you look at... um, if you look at the US where I think porn is, is much more mainstream, so you have sort of porn actresses who can almost become celebrities, like mainstream celebrities. We don't really have that here. Even a lot of them are now speaking out about how they were originally coerced into the industry. Jenna Jameson's a big one, right? She was known as the queen of porn, and even she's come out and said, you know, I was trafficked into this industry when I was like, I think she was 16. So if this is even happening, and, and, and the pornography I was involved in was, was mainstream. You know, it wasn't, it's not some dark, seedy corner of, of the internet. So if this is even happening on, you know, in mainstream porn production companies and mainstream porn sets and mainstream porn sites, then how much worse is it in those darker areas that you don't see? What do you think is happening with OnlyFans? I think OnlyFans is doing such a good job of whitewashing the industry. Because... Um, it is just webcamming, essentially. It's it's exactly the same as, as the webcamming I was trafficked into. You're on camera and there's some degree of, of sexual interaction. Um, and I know that just as with, you know, sort of the webcamming that existed before OnlyFans, you're only really making money if you're doing the more sort of the more hardcore things. The idea that you can, I think, go on these sites and make millions selling pictures of your feet is is ridiculous. And yet if you look at, there's constantly articles in our media about this this young woman who's made a fortune on OnlyFans. Um, you know, women talking about how it helped get them through university, or just it's being sold in the same way that if you look at what happened to me, where the the escort agency, which was a trafficking ring, was sold to me as as sugaring or dating, right, by by the trafficker. This is being done by the media to society, to these young women, because we're not, they're not writing articles saying, I mean, there are some, obviously there are some, we have, we have, you know, feminist journalists and, and more conservative outlets who are, who are platforming women who've survived trafficking and coercion, including within OnlyFans. But predominantly, the kind of outlets that young people are going to be looking at are pushing the idea that this is, this is fine, it's safe, it's a good way to make money. So they're being lied to the same way that I was directly lied to by the trafficker. I think I think society has to ask itself: with society is becoming a pimp. The media is, is taking on the role almost of, of a pimp, which is selling this idea of sex workers' work to young people. You're not you're not sitting them down and saying, you know, these are the these are the statistics of the, the things that could happen to you if you go down this route. That's almost being deliberately hidden from them. 
So it seems like there's this parallel that you're witnessing mm-hmm. a couple decades later that that yeah. looks so much like what what you went through, where um, it was the fact that you were young, naive, mm-hmm. uh, didn't have good boundaries because of your own, you know, history of assault, um, and and that you were financially desperate. They they yeah. knew how to take advantage of that and say, hey, we have mm-hmm. something that's this going to be a win win, right? You you can elevate your circumstances, get yourself to a better place. All you have to do is this, that, and the other is going to be easy. And it's going to make you lots of money. That's sort of the come here, little girl, the the beginning. And then from there, you're quickly pulled into this world where if you really want to make any money, you have to put up with the worst abuses. And then by the end, you don't have any money or control over your circumstances. You're just basically a slave at that point. So here with OnlyFans, do you know much about the OnlyFans to prostitution pipeline? Because you're saying webcamming, obviously webcamming is something that a girl can do by herself or with her boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. Um, how many of these girls, I mean, so so the parallel there with OnlyFans, just to clarify that thought, is that it's sort of here, you can make a lot of money, it's mm-hmm. really empowering, it's flexible schedule, work from home, um, get yourself through college. Um, that's sort of how it's sold. And, and it's made out to this easy thing, but then the actual financial reality is that the vast majority of girls doing things that are truly easy for them are not making much money. And if you want to make money, you have to end up basically selling your Mm -hmm. soul. So how many of these girls are kind of in this pipeline and the OnlyFans to, um, you know, more hardcore pornography or prostitution pipeline? I don't know if we have any sort of recent statistics for OnlyFans um, in particular, but but this is just common across the industry. The only way to make money is to do ever more hardcore things. And this is particularly true in webcoming. Um, you know, people aren't going to pay for very long to just chat to someone sitting there in their underwear. And, and, and you know, and pornography users and sex buyers, in my experience, will push boundaries. They'll want to see what they can get you to do. Um, and there are just there are just so many er- ways in which something like OnlyFans becomes a gateway. Um, so you're not going to make the money that you were promised unless you do the harder and harder things. Um, it also gradually lowers your boundaries. So you might start off thinking, "I'm only going to do this," but then and then you'll gradually desensitize. You you break a little boundary, you break another one, you break another one, and then before you know it, you're agreeing to meet someone who's brought your pictures to for paid sex right um but also people will directly target sites like OnlyFans. you know there will be pimps on there trying to entice women into working for them um there's going to be consumers on there trying to persuade the women to, to film themselves send it to them um meet them and there will be porn producers on there sites like that really do work as as a funnel into um into hard rows of the industry. And, and this is this has always been the case. Um, there are modeling sites for sort of would-be glamour models um, that function in much the same way, where photographers will actually turn out to be pimps. This has been going on for, for decades. I think the difference with OnlyFans is it's kind of right there in everyone's face. It's almost become a trend. And that's, I mean, that's frightening. And you, you mentioned New Zealand. Um, 
I think there's been a, a bit of an uproar there recently because sites like OnlyFans are just happily advertising now on kind of, you know, the big billboards that you get at the side of the roads. And so it's really being pushed. Wow. Um, and New Zealand have um, full decriminalisation. Like you say, I spoke about this recently for Women's Declaration International, and that's um, that basically makes everything legal. You have legal brothels and... Um, Buying sex is legal. Facilitating sex is legal. So you're essentially legalizing pimping. Um, and that's been horrendous for women in the sex trade over there. Let's debunk some of the myths, the myths associated with legalization. So I have, I have several questions. So I, I want to name what's on my list of things I still want to ask you about. Um, mm-hmm. So one is I want to ask you about your writing practice and the and how that's served okay. you. Um, I want to ask about how parents can protect their children um, because I'm imagining, you know, a lot of my listeners are parents mm-hmm. who are worried about their adolescent and young adults who are, you know, kind of groomed into the the gender identity cult. And I'm imagining many of them are freaking out thinking, what is my daughter going to get up to now? Um, so I do want to ask what advice you would have for families to, you know, protect their children. Um, but I just want to bookmark those um, so that we can come back to them. Um, I think it's so important debunking these myths because when you talk about um, decriminalization and like what they're doing in places like New Zealand, there are popular myths that support those measures, like the idea that if you decriminalize it, it'll be safer um, because then women have recourse if they're being harmed and um, things like that. And I've I'd love to hear your takedown, st- maybe starting with that one. Well, it's it's been evidence to be false. So the talk that I did for WDI, I put my slides up on my blog and I took the the information directly from the New Zealand's own governmental report, which is a review of the law, which um, in the conclusion tries to kind of whitewash what's been found in the report and say yes you know lots of work still needs to be done but it's on the right track this is a good law and you know women in the sex trade people in the sex trade are safer than they were before when you dig into the report that's not the case um and there was also recent research done by a group called stand against sexual exploitation who made a series of freedom of information requests to the new zealand government so the actual data that we have from New Zealand itself shows that uh, levels of violence are the same, higher in some areas. Um, women still aren't reporting to the police. There have been hardly any convictions for violence and abuse. Um, New Zealand are recognised as a destination country for human trafficking, so they have real issues with trafficking. Um, street prostitution has hugely expanded and the most marginalized people in the sex trade are quite often um as well as people in economic desperation and minors runaways lgbt people are also indigenous maori people so the you know literally the most marginalized are being the most damaged by this um the report of of the law um also included interviews with brothel owners almost as many as it did with people in the sex trade who'd been sourced through pro-sex work groups so the information that we have is biased and it's still horrendous it was still a statistic of at least 41 percent of women since the law had been brought in being raped by punters 
I mean, this is just there in black and white. I don't, I, I do not understand why this law is being kind of pushed around the world mm. by pro pro prostitution groups because there's absolutely no evidence that it does any of the things that they claim it does. The only thing that it was found to be beneficial for was enforcing condom use. So it's better mm. for punters because they're less likely to contract sexually transmitted diseases. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I think you wrote about that on, on that blog article that um, yeah. that this is being pushed by things like, if I recall correctly, like the World Health Organization and stuff, because it, they're yeah. thinking, oh, like, stop the spread of HIV or whatever. And they're not thinking about mm-hmm. the victims. Isn't there also a, a supply and demand issue? I feel like I've, I've read about this when I've when I've looked into sort of debunking these popular myths because people say, well... You know, there will always be a demand, so let's just regulate the supply to protect the suppliers. But isn't there sort of a vicious cycle where if prostitution is legalized, then more people will seek it out um, because there are yeah. there are people who will always, and by people, I mean, you know, 99% men, 99.9% men mm-hmm. who will seek it out regardless of its legal status. And those are typically people who yeah. might be yeah. a bit more criminal-minded, bit more sociopathic in nature. And then mm-hmm. there are people who uh, would do it if they could get away with it, but don't want to get caught or don't want to risk what mm-hmm. it would do to get caught, right? So so then you open up. If it's legal, then you have more demand and there will always be a need for fresh supply because it's my understanding they're always looking for for young women, right? So there's only so many years that you can stay in the industry. Um, and and who wants to do this really when you, when you look at all that it mm-hmm. entails so then they there has to be manipulation coercion trafficking deception these things are embedded in the process because if women understood what they were really getting into 
the vast majority of women would never choose this for themselves. That's my understanding of the sort of the supply and demand issue around legalization. But is there anything that you would want to add to that or any other sort of dimensions we should look up at this from? Well, you're absolutely right. And if you look at countries like Germany and the Netherlands that are sort of very prominently legalized, they have huge problems with both trafficking and sex tourism. And it's exactly as you said, there aren't enough people who willingly want to do it. Um, New Zealand is, is slightly different purely because it's more geographically isolated. They naturally don't have the issues with sex tourism. And I think that's why that one is held up rather than Germany or or Holland. But actually their laws are, are not really very much different. Um, Decriminalisation is really just a form of legalisation. So, yeah, you're absolutely right about the supply and demand issue. And I think what you said about well, who wants to do it, I think, is another reason it's it's being pushed on sort of different groups now. Um, it needs to be whitewashed in order to entice people in. I mean, if you look at the fact that the media in many areas is pushing things like OnlyFans, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of sort of high profile Media moguls quite often also make money from various areas of the sex industry. You know, um, you know I don't want to get into sort of conspiracy thinking, but I think I think that's I think that's kind of a no brainer. There's a hell of a lot of money being made in the sex industry, mm. um, and so people that are profiting from that are not going to want to paint it as as a bad thing. And it's also being pushed heavily in our universities. Um, which I think is another, I think students are another group that are sort of being funneled into the sex industry. And that's coming both through, both through the media, but also through academia itself. Let's take another popular myth um, that, that prostitution is rape prevention, that men, there, there's a certain subset of men that would rape if they couldn't get access to sex. And so you should supply it and therefore it's protecting women from rape yeah i mean this one makes me uh, really angry um when you consider how many women are raped in prostitution i mean you could make the argument that, that all prostitution is a form of rape because cash can't can't equal consent but you know some people in prostitution themselves would disagree with that so that's that's kind of a controversial area but but even without going down that road there's, there's no denying that rates of, of rape in the sex trade are horrendously high um, so it isn't cutting rape. Um, in New Zealand, actually, their rates of, of rape have soared since decriminalisation. And it's it's very hard to prove causation with these things anyway. Mm. Um, so I don't think you can, to throw out a sort of blanket statement mm. that legalising prostitution will prevent rape. We don't have any evidence to suggest that's true. And even yeah. if you could find a statistic that says that what you're doing is you're ignoring all the women in the sex trade. You're saying it's okay for them to be raped. These women don't matter. What you're doing is you're you're, you're taking yeah, you're taking you're taking the most marginalised women because they tend to be those that end up in the sex trade and using them as almost as cannon fodder. It's okay for us to be raped as long as these these yeah. these women here aren't being raped. It's and it also is a tremendous you, argument. As you pointed out in that other argument, it paints men as these savages yeah. and. And it also, I think, tells a very naive tale about rape, that rape is nothing more than the manifest than the savage manifestation of an unsatisfied desire. And if you just make sure that desire gets satisfied, uh -huh. well, then they'll be content. Whereas I think, and tell me what you think of this, that 
in reality, it would seem more like um, men who buy sex uh, develop more like an addiction where it's it's not that, oh, I had sex with a prostitute. Now I'm good and, and I, everything's all rainbows and butterflies and I want to be kind to the people in my life. Instead, it's more like it sparks more of an mm-hmm. appetite because because this sex is not actually truly satisfying because it because I'm sure on some level a man also has to compartmentalize or dissociate um, if he has any moral instincts whatsoever in order to engage in that. It's not satisfying. It's not loving and intimate and connected to the rest of his life and to his, his integrity and his morals. So it's like it's like junk food or alcohol. And so then it creates like more of a, a hunger and then people go kind of further into their kinks and fetishes and, and violence. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it would seem to me, not that this, this hunger is satisfied, but rather that the cycle of addiction is, is enabled. And therefore men want to, as you were saying, they like to push boundaries and they want to just keep pushing more and more boundaries. And maybe that, maybe they're pushing those boundaries with another prostitute, but maybe they're pushing those boundaries with the wife that they're cheating on or with, with other women. I mean, there are some studies that show that um, sex buyers are also more likely to to be abusive and to rape. Um, So it's definitely, I wouldn't say all sex buyers, but definitely a lot um, are of that mindset anyway. Um, And yeah, in terms of the sexual addiction, you've got a real issue with desensitisation now, as you say. You know, the idea that if you have kind of fetishes or, or sexual compulsions that, that buying sex is going to somehow alleviate that. Well, of course it's not. We know with any other addiction, it doesn't work that way. It's just going to escalate. So why would it be any different there? Um, I think anyone who's buying sex regularly, there has to be something, as you say, they're either compartmentalizing or addicted or there's there's something missing in terms of a basic level of empathy. Because these men aren't stupid. They know that they're paying for a fantasy. They're paying for you to say yes because you wouldn't, because otherwise you would say no. Um, and to be able to do that to someone, to have sex with someone who you know doesn't want to have sex with you and expect them to pretend that they do, there's something just inherently morally corrupt about that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think some men, you know, perhaps they buy sex a few times and, and, and genuinely don't realise because because they've been told by the media that it's fine, as we've got a bit of a macho culture. Um, but I think if you're doing it regularly, I mean, if you look at punter forums and see the way that regular sex buyers speak to each other about the women that they abuse, they know. They know what they're doing. They know that a lot of these women are trafficked, are pimped, are abused, are desperate. They know. Um, the most comprehensive study ever done here um, found that 50% of women in the sex trade, and this was sort of across the country in, in various different areas of, of the sex industry, 50% were pimped. Um, and the, the remaining 50% was largely done out of, out of economic desperation. Mm-hmm. And punters know this. They know that the women are either pimped or economically desperate or both. And they, they clearly don't care. There's a cycle between our identity, values, ethics, behavior, beliefs, and some people have this kind of two-dimensional view of human nature that either you're a vir- virtuous person and therefore you behave mm-hmm. 
virtuously or you're a not virtuous person, then you believe you behave in a morally corrupt way. But it's a lot more complicated than that. The way you behave also shapes your sense of virtue. And um, I was just reading about this one of my one of my favorite authors, Leonard Sachs. I just finished his his fourth of four books, uh, The Collapse of Parenting, and I'm excited I get to interview him soon. And he was writing about how in parenting it's important that you set the expectation that your children in, behave virtuously because that will ultimately shape their character into being virtuous at heart. And so this idea that you can just let people behave in ways that are so morally corrupt and that there won't be a trickle-down impact from that, I don't think we know what the impact is. I think it's hard to trace, but I don't think that we as a society should be organizing ourselves in a way that says whatever's clever, you know, you want to do something that is on some level evil, um, go for it. You know, we don't know um, what all the ramifications are of allowing people to divorce themselves from their conscience conscience again and again. Um, let's, let's bust one more myth. The, um, and you wrote an article about this on your Substack. Again, I'll pitch that. It'll be in the show notes. It's michellek.substack.com. Excellent resources there. So the idea that disabled men have a right to sex. <clears throat> yeah, I hate this one. Um, and it, I've had disabled men themselves say this to me, like, even even if even if you're you're pro prostitution, right? The idea that you're saying that disabled men can only be intimate with someone if they pay for it. What are you trying to say about disabled men? You know, I mean, granted, there may be some people who have physical difficulties that make intimacy physically um, difficult, but the idea that that all disabled men are somehow repulsive and have to buy sex that they're not going to be able to find, you know, a, a relationship. Um, I just think it's just such a horrible thing to say. Um, but from the point of view of, of someone who's been, been exploited in the sex trade, this is just a way of white, whitewashing the sex buyer. If we can paint the sex buyer as a sympathetic person, you can ignore all that stuff I just said about how you have to be morally corrupt to do it. Mm. You know, if we can have sympathy for the man who's paying for sex, then that makes paying for sex okay. It makes it a service. It makes it, it almost makes it altruistic. Um, mm. And it's just such a kind of, it, it's gaslighting, I think. I've, I've seen articles mm. written um, on this subject from, from the sort of pro-prostitution angle. And it's, why would you want to deprive these, these poor disabled men of, of this wonderful service? And I just, I just can't believe that they're even allowed to get away with that. I mean, who mm. sources so if a man is really genuinely so disabled that he cannot, you know, that he needs help to access a physical relationship, right, then someone else, his carer, essentially, is going to have to source that for him. I mean, that's illegal in this country to facilitate prostitution anyway. So I'd, I'm not sure how that would, would happen. Um, and we actually, we actually had a, a court case about this um, and where a disabled person went to court to have his carer be allowed to do this for him and it was allowed and then it was thrown out on appeal because our laws our laws make this illegal if full decriminalization came in then that would be perfectly okay and you're then putting carers carers are very often women they're very often low paid so they may need their job you're then putting them in a position of having to do something that they may be morally opposed to in order to keep their job so we're dragging more people into this and then who's making sure that the the woman who's being paid 
to sexually service this disabled man is not being exploited. Mm. If we take the statistic that 50% of women in the trade are, are directly coerced, who's making sure that they're not actually helping to traffic this woman? Because I, I don't believe that there are very many, many women, if any, who are actually in the sex trade because they have this altruistic wish to help disabled men have sex. So how are you going to find these, these rare women then? How are you going to ensure that the woman is perfectly happy and consenting? And I just, and I just, I don't believe there's a right to sex. I don't believe there is an inherent right to sex. I agree. And I, I think that sex is such a powerful motivator of behavior and that I, I admire my admittedly naive, uh, view, uh, because it's not very well informed, but, but this fantasy I have in my head, at least of how life could be in society structured much differently from Mars where, um, Mm -hmm you know, like societies of, of times past the way, you know, ones that are much more sexually conservative where, um, men had to prove themselves and, and work hard to get sex because men are so motivated to get sex. So if they have Mm -hmm. to demonstrate that they are of upstanding character, that they will provide for their family and protect their wife and children. And if they have to commit to a woman, you know, like those standards that used to be more normative at certain times in history, I do sort of admire that. And I'm sure that all kinds of sexual violence and exploitation also existed in those eras. But at the same time, whatever standard you expect men to rise to in order to obtain sex is a motivator for their behavior. So can, can sex be a motivator for good behavior? Um, the, the sort of behavior we want to reward that helps keep society flourishing. Um, I have a few more questions for you. I want to pack in. Um, I wanted to ask what you think should be done by, by governments, by concerned citizens. What do people need to know? What would you encourage? In terms of the, the prostitution issue, oh god, there's so much. Um, so I'm I'm in favour of what I said is called the Nordic model, um, and I'm a member of a policy group here that campaigns for that. Um, but even with, within that, there are there are lots of concerns. Um, I'm, so I'm not in. Although I think it's important that sex buying is criminalised because I think that sound, sends an important message. No, it isn't okay. It's exploitative. It's not okay to pay for consent. That negates. I mean, we can't teach young people about sexual consent and then tell them it's okay to pay for it, right? Um, but I also think that some people, particularly conservatives or people on the right, want to kind of go in very heavy handed in terms of um, catching sex buyers. And that can be detrimental to the women still stuck in the sex trade. So we really need to look at ways of ways of making buying sex both illegal and and shown as the exploitation it is without having that detrimental effect. Um, and there are, way, there are ways of doing that. There are various groups talking about about ways of doing that. Um, so that's a big conversation that needs to happen. Um, but before we can even have that conversation, we need to get the Nordic model even on the table. Um, there's a real resistance. Even among the Conservative Party here, there's a real resistance, I think, to making sex 
illegal and it, and again buying sex illegal if not making sex illegal <laughs> but buying it and again um i'm just going to say this a lot of and i know this from experience a lot of mps um and related professions are sex buyers so i'm not surprised that there is there is resistance to this so not you know not only do you have resistance from kind of overtly pro-prostitution lobby groups but there's going to be private and personal resistance to this um Unfortunately, and that's that's always going to be a barrier to get over. But I, I do think that lobbying for for those laws, for some form of the Nordic model, which recognises this as a form of exploitation, is is something we can do because we need this to reach a tipping point. And um, it's been done in other countries. Um, so there's no reason why it can't be done elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a state. I think I think I know New York are pushing for it. I think someone else brought it in recently, an American American state. I'm not sure which one. Um, you'd obviously know more about that than me. But there is, there is a movement <laughs> happening there. Mm. Okay. But there is a movement behind that to get the laws changed. Um, also, I think we really need to look at our societal messaging. Because in terms of things like OnlyFans and pornography, obviously this is completely legal. And while it's important, I think that government put more regulation on that. You know, I think that, I think that hardcore porn where we're showing the violent acts should be banned. Um, I mean, our laws here say that you can't, so even if, so if you beat someone up and then go to court and say, well, they consented to it, that's not a defense in law unless it's sexual. So, we, you know, that needs to be changed. It's not okay because it's happening on camera. Um, and things around the ability of minors to access porn, you know, how easy it is, how, how it's, it's just, it's everywhere. Um, even, I mean, I have, I have a little one and in my internet is, is so sort of fiercely guarded in my house, but things slip through. I can, I can be on my phone browsing the web and I even have my own phone. Um, very, very safeguarded in case he picks it up or something and still things will pop through, you know, or things that you can click on that will, that will take you somewhere. And I think governments really need to catch up with that. But our cultural messaging as well, this kind of idea that, that this is okay. Everything is so over-sexualized. Um, I was speaking about this, this recently, how if you even look at little girls' clothes these days, the six-year-olds don't need booty shorts, you know, and, and push-up bras and things like that. And this speaking of children. Face of, um, yeah. This isn't coming from a place of, um, you know, like I'm pretty sex positive, but I think we need to recognise that the commodification of sex is not sex positive, and certainly when it starts creeping into to our children, you know, safeguarding is paramount, and we're failing at that. And in terms of, of parents protecting their kids, I think we just talk to them as soon as it's age appropriate. Talk to them. Talk to girls about what could be out there preying on them. You know, talk to them about the realities behind things like OnlyFans. Talk to boys as well. Um, we, we're seeing a rise in peer-on-peer sexual assaults in schools here because of the way teenage boys are accessing hardcore pornography before their brains are even developed. We, we, we need to be parents need to be getting in there first. They need to be they need to be talking. We're you know if you look at how the teenage brain develops, it's still being hardwired. When you go through puberty, your your sexuality is being hardwired, and we're exposing them to hardcore porn. 
at an age when that is going to stick. And that's, you know, that's just obviously dangerous. I, I You know, there, there are even sort of people who are generally pro-pornography who, who have spoken out about this. And I just, government seems to be, to be really, really slow about regulating this. The pornography industry is not going to regulate itself. Um, and as parents, we really, really need to be talking to our kids. Um, and, and it's difficult, especially with teenagers, because no teenager wants to talk to their parents about sex. Um, so I think schools have a part to play in this as well. And I think that's another area where we're failing. Some of the, um, I know there's been issues in some states in America as well. And here there's, there's a lot of campaigns at the moment to sort our sexual education curriculum out because it's almost, it's almost pro pornography and, and pro sex work. Um, I have friends whose, whose, whose kids are like 12, 13 and they're teaching them about BDSM. And not just in a very basic way, like you might see this stuff somewhere and have a question about it. Not, not, not as a way of preempting the fact that they might come across it as a, well, this is a normal form of sexual expression, you know, and everyone has kinks and we shouldn't shame them for it. Stop teaching 12 year old girls that it's, it's perfectly fine if a man wants to beat them up in bed. You know, this is horrendous. There's so much that needs changing. It's hard not to be despondent. Um, but I think we have to have hope. I think the fact that the fact that this has all become so mainstream is kind of a double-edged sword because it's making parents aware. The fact that it's so out there and in our face now it's very similar with with what's going on with some of the excesses of the trans movement. People are becoming aware, and I think when you start coming for children and minors, parents are going to start doing something. So I am seeing a lot more movement, um, and like I say, it's about reaching a tipping point. If we push hard enough governments will listen and markets will listen i think i think boycotts if you get enough people are a good thing you know find out find out what companies invest in the sex trade or areas that are adjacent to it and stop buying from them you know stop buying things for your stop buying booty shorts for your six-year-old just because her friends are wearing them boycott the shops that are selling them um i think if we come at it from enough angles we can make a difference what really worries me and I don't know if this is the same in the US, um, but with the case of, of minors getting groomed into the sex trade and or um, transition, it's happening a lot to kids in care. When the Tavistock was closed down recently, it was found that a huge percentage of the children that had been rapidly transitioned, so appropriate safeguarding wasn't taking place, were in foster care. So obviously they don't have parental protection. Um, and the parents may not be in a place where they're even able to protect them. Um, so that's that's an area that we do need to look at. I think as a society, we need to really start protecting our most vulnerable because I feel like they're they're being thrown under the bus a lot. You know that was that was that was part of my um, my journey. I have good relationships with my family now, but I didn't when I was younger. Um, and I grew up in a fairly dysfunctional household, so I wasn't in care or anything like that. But I didn't have the relationship with my parents where I was protected from those things. So we really need to look at how as a society are we, are we looking after the kids that don't have that. Those are many wise words to end on. Um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here. So uh, people can find you again at michellek.substack.com. As of the time of this recording, you're taking a Twitter hiatus. Any, any plans to return soon? Probably September. I'm just having a break for the summer, really. School holidays. 
I've got a lot going on. So, yeah. Remind us what your handle is. On Twitter, at mkellywrites. On Twitter, at mkellywrites. And um, anything else about where people can find your work? Oh, wait, you have a book. I haven't read it. Um, It's uh, Eyes Wide Open. Where can people find that? Um, Bookshops, Amazon. Um, I have a few. Actually, I've written romance and crime. Um, probably if you're in the US, I guess Amazon would be the best place. I do have a cozy mystery series, which is in bookshops in the US. But a lot of my other work would be just UK. Okay, great. So we will actually add that to my bookshop. So if you go to sometherapist.com slash bookshop, I have Amazon affiliate links to Thank you. Uh, guests. Anyone who's been on the show is right at the top. Um, and then also some other recommended reading. Um, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, so they can find your books. Um, yeah. Anything else before we close? Just thank you for having me on. Um, and just quickly in terms of my books, the reason I put eyes wide open in my bio um, specifically for these types of conversations is because I wrote it, although it's heavily fictionalized, I did write it about some of my my experiences in the sex trade. So for anyone who wants to, just want to have to check my work out and who's interested in those topics, that's, that's probably the best one to go to. Okay. We'll be sure to include the link. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. And um, I, I admire your ability to have gotten yourself to where you are. I mean, it's, it must be a testament to your strength of character and sort of the power of your your intellect to pull you through. And um, one thing we didn't talk about, but that was on my mind was um, the role that writing has had in your own kind of healing and, and empowerment process. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing that and that you're speaking out so that your experiences were not in vain, but they can be used to help others. I think that's an important part of healing sometimes is being able to use your experiences for good. Agreed. All right. Thank you, Michelle. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.